Today is the first Sunday after Pentecost, which is Trinity Sunday. Uh, most liturgical days uh, in the Christian calendar celebrate events in the history of redemption, usually events in the history of Christ. So you have Advent, Christmas, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, Pentecost. But today is the only day that I am aware of that devotes celebrating a core doctrine of the faith. Um, following the revelation of Christ and his birth, death, and resurrection, and then following uh, the revelation of the Holy Spirit or the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we are now able to worship God in his fullness as triune God, one God and three persons. And that is what today is devoted to. And as luck would have it, today's passage includes Jesus's audacious claim to be the Son of God. Uh, not another God, not a replacement God, not half of God or a third of God, but light from light, very God from very God, the one God with God, the one God sent from God. Our scripture reader for today is Leah Davis, and she will be reading from John 5, verses 19 to 29. All right. Our scripture reading for today, as Dave said, is John 5, verses 19 through 29. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the revelation of Jesus and the person of Christ, or revelation of the fullness of God, the Trinity, in the person of Jesus, uh, that you were not content to let us feel around during you sent Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, to reveal your fullness as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes that truth this morning that we would hear your voice and hear your son's voice uh, hear the spirit's voice this morning um, grant us that gift and uh, may it lead us to marvel at your glory we pray these things in christ's name amen 
Maggie and my first mentors in ministry were Robert and Karen Chong uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, and they are the loveliest people. We still are friends um, with them. Uh, Robert Chong was one of the pastors of our first church together, and they led the spiritual care team, um, and they discipled us in pastoral counseling when we were just 21, newly married. Um, if any of you have sat with us over the years in our living room or at a coffee shop, um, benefited from our listening and care, that all began 18 years ago with Robert and Karen and their uh, faithful discipleship to us. Uh, we would actually get to sit in with them while they counseled a person or a couple quietly. We didn't say anything. We were just sort of like dummies in the back, but we just got to watch and observe their care, um, which they are still doing uh, to this day, and they still care for us. And I'll never forget Karen's masterful use of body language. Um, so Karen is the sweetest woman you'll ever meet, very Southern. She's so very encouraging. To this day, she thinks way more highly of me than she should. And when you're with her, there's just lots of head nodding. Have you ever known these people who just nod and affirm? Lots of empathetic affirmation. Oh, brother, yes, I know. That is so hard. Mm -hmm. Like just like constant in the background. And so with so much encouragement and affection, you just keep talking, right? You just pour your heart out to this person. But then uh, let's say you're receiving some marriage counseling and you say something not okay right sort of demeaning insulting towards your spouse and the head nodding just stops <laughs> where you're just lots of affirmation and then it's just cold um it's the scariest thing like all the oxygen has been just been sucked from the room and you're just wondering like what did i say and with her face she's basically saying like you know what you said right uh and i love you but i'm not going to mm -hmm that like i'm not going to <laughs> affirm what you said, you are on your own, sweet, dear brother. It was vicious, um, but spot on and so good and helpful. And I think that experience might be some of what's going on when we get to John 5, 19. Um, before this moment, Jesus has really been humanity's best friend, right? He's turning water into wine. He's talking to Samaritan ladies, right? Healing Gentile sons, telling crippled men to get up and walk on the Sabbath. But then... The Jewish leadership come by and they question Jesus' authority to do such things. And they don't just question him, right? Uh, say it again. No, Karen Chong is her name. Uh, they don't just question. It's C-H-E-O-N-G. Great. Um, so the Jews come by, they question Jesus' authority, and they don't just question him, though. Right? He probably would have trafficked with that. The Samaritan woman questioned Jesus. But they call him a heretic. They confront his relationship with his father. And that's when Jesus' tone changes. There is much to learn from how Jesus engages the Pharisees. Uh, last month, with the story of the Samaritan woman, we talked about how we can learn from Jesus' conversation with her, her his grace his kindness, his gentle challenges. Well, what can we learn from Jesus' tone here? This is lecture Jesus, right? This is monologue Jesus, professor, philosopher, put you in your place. He just talks at them. He doesn't ask them questions. He doesn't engage them in a conversation. He just, go, he just tells it like it is. And it's important to remember that Jesus is a whole person 
interacting with whole people. Christian conversation should not be monotone. Uh, There are many ways to engage in conversation with people. God has equipped us with a variety of emotions, postures, tones, and we need them all. Uh, Different situations, different relationships require different postures. All motivated by love, of course, love for God and love for neighbor. Jesus is loving in this conversation, even as his tone changes. So before we get to the substance of what Jesus says, that's one meta observation of this text. Notice the variety of Jesus' conversation styles. And the second meta observation is the flip side. Because before we can talk like this Jesus, we have to let Jesus talk this way to us. How do we feel about listening to this Jesus? Lecture Jesus. Telling it like it is. Will we let Jesus love us like this? Up to this point, we've had Jesus the friend of sinners, Jesus the healer, Jesus the mysterious, Jesus the bridge builder. But Jesus is not building a bridge with the Pharisees in John 5. Uh, He's drawing lines. He's building walls between him and them. There's a door in the wall. There's an invitation. There's always a welcome to come in. But according to his set terms, where you're either in or you're out. We love Jesus the bridge builder. What about Jesus the wall builder? So be prepared, we should be prepared, I need to be prepared when I challenge Christ. Be prepared to be out-challenged. The Pharisees are constantly underestimating Christ, right? In all the Gospels, they have these moments where they think they have cornered him rhetorically, but then Jesus silences them with just a sentence or two, and the only thing left for them to do is to kill him, which is what they do. And honestly, we can do the same thing. We think that we can silence God. And when he silences us, we are tempted to just cut him off. How might you underestimate Jesus? Where are you tempted to underestimate God's word? It's easy to believe when we approach an ancient text that we're more sophisticated than the original audience because um, we live in a technologically advanced society. And so we think, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, can anything good come from Christian history, from Christian theology? And this text reminds me that when I ask a question of Jesus, when I ask a question of God, the Bible, the creeds, the church, when I challenge them with a hostile question, I need to be ready to sit for the answer. Because he's got one, but it might not go down easy. Now, to be fair to the Jews confronting Jesus in John 5, he was picking a fight. Sometimes Jesus picks a fight with us. Uh, Back up to verse 16. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He had just healed someone and told someone to pick up their mat, um, but it was a Sabbath day, and you're not supposed to pick up anything on the Sabbath. And so um, they were persecuting him for it. So the Jews were initially just upset with Christ for working miracles on the Sabbath. And Jesus could have defended himself in a number of ways. In other parts of the Gospels, um, example, uh, you can check out how Jesus answers the Sabbath criticism in Matthew 12. Um, He goes sort of a softer route. So Matthew 12, a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? 
So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is saying here, guys, I'm not doing anything more than you do on the Sabbath. You care for what you love on the Sabbath. I care for who I love. But that's not how Jesus responds in John 5. For whatever reason, I'm not sure why, Jesus chooses not to diffuse the conflict, but instead he pours gasoline on it. John 5, 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. In verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so in verse 16, John writes that the Jews were merely persecuting Jesus. But then after what Jesus says in verse 17, it, it ups the temperature, right? The Pharisees now want all the more to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, John says, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And the author of the Gospel of John inserts this explainer here because he knows there will be non-Jews like us reading the Gospel. And we will sort of be taken aback, like, what is the big deal? What just happened in this exchange? It's important to remember that the Sabbath was the sign of the Old Covenant. And as the sign the commandment to honor the Sabbath was arguably the most important commandment. Uh, God tells Moses in Exodus 31, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Above all, keep the Sabbath. So thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, like all these other things, those are important too, but above all, keep the Sabbath. In Jewish theology, the only person not under the Sabbath command was God. And on the one hand, it was just philosophically necessary, right? If God stopped working actually, completely, who would uphold the universe? Like somebody has to keep it going. And so God is that person. Um, but it's also because God is omnipotent. And so we would ask, like, nothing has actually worked for him, right? He um, is not working. He doesn't need rest in the way that we do. Um, so when Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working, he is making himself equal to God. He says, the God, the father doesn't have to honor the Sabbath. And that means I don't either. And the Jews think this is blasphemous, but Jesus goes on in verses 19 to 29 to explain why it is not actually blasphemous for him to say this. In fact, Jesus' statement, along with his miracles, should be glorious to them because it means that God himself is standing in front of them. The structure of Jesus' monologue is built around four fours, a four because statement, which is, in Greek is this little word gar, translated for, so four fours. The first is at the end of verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever for, whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. 
Uh, Stephen Wellam writes, Jesus here makes three points about his sonship, grounded in his dependence on the Father. The Son is not the Father. The Son does only what the Father does. The Son does all that the Father does. The Father and Son are distinct from each other, yet perform the same works. The Son does no less and no more than the Father. They are perfectly united in their work. Uh, 519 should sound a lot um, like John 1 to us. So this is the first time that uh, the Son's unity with the Father is coming off of the mouth of Jesus. But we've read in the prologue, we sort of had a preface in the prologue from John, where John 1 emphasizes God's oneness and distinction. Uh, So John 1, 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so you have unity and distinction. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And so there is both oneness and distinction in God. It's not tritheism. It's not three gods. It's triunity. And that's a pivotal difference, essential to Christianity. It's essential to our salvation. Jesus isn't blaspheming God. Because he's not claiming equality with God as another God, as a replacement God, or a competing God. Quite the opposite, his equality with God is found in his profound unity with God. The unity of a perfect son with a perfect father. The son is not going rogue to come save us. It is impossible for the son to take independent action, self-determined action, for that would be a denial of his sonship. God the Son is perfectly united with God the Father, such that the two persons share everything. They share the same vision. They share the same power. They share the same will. Again, John five nineteen. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This is why Jesus is the perfect revelation of God to us. Because he is always doing only what the Father does. He is a picture of who the Father is. He only does what his Father does, only says what his Father says. And so John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And what is his glory like? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, verse 18, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So that's the first four, profound four. The second four is in verse 20, and it explains the basis for the Son and Father's unity. So the first four tells us the extent of their unity, which is, com- which is comprehensive in total. They are fully one. There is one God. Father and Son and Spirit. And the second four tells us the grounds of their unity, which is love. John 5.20, for the Father loves the Son. Why does the Son only do what the Father says? Because the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. And so the Son's obedience to the Father is not slavery. It's not robotic. It's intimate. Intimacy is what grounds the unity 
of the three persons in God. The Father loves the Son. Love is what moves the Father to bring the Son into all that the Father's doing. He wants to share it with the Son. And so he shows him everything so that there is nothing the Father keeps from the Son. The Son loves the Father. Love is what moves the Son to join the Father in all that the Father is doing so that there is nothing the Son does on his own. Love is the ground of their relationship, which is actually, wildly, what makes the father-son relationship triune and not biune. We're not talking about uh, a a bi-unity, right? Three persons, not two persons. Because historically, from Scripture, love is the third person. Love is the ground of their relationship. And that's actually what makes it triune. The Holy Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son is himself the love between Father and Son. Uh, This profound reality is captured by St. Augustine in his book on the Trinity. He says, talking about the analogy from his own perspective, for I do not love love unless I love it loving something. Because there is no love where nothing is being loved. You can't just be loving, right? empty you have to love something so then there are three the lover what is being loved and love that is the trinity you have lover beloved and love father son and spirit the third and fourth force describe two of these greater works the father will do through the son what they are going to do together. John 5, 21 to 23. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to who he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And so here, Jesus claims for himself three exclusively divine activities, giving life, rendering judgment, and receiving worship. Those are things that only belong to God. They do not belong to any creature at all. Resurrection, judgment, worship, they're the sole prerogatives of God. And so in Deuteronomy 32, 39, God speaks through Moses, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. God is the only God who kills and makes alive. He's the only God who wounds and heals. In Ezekiel, when God gives the vision of the dry bones, which we sang about and asked the Lord for this morning, God tells Israel that we will know he is God when he raises people from the dead. That's how we will know that this is God that we're dealing with. Ezekiel 37, 13, you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Resurrection, both experienced now and in the future, is only accomplishable by God. He's the only one who's able to do that. And here in John 5, Jesus is telling the Jews to get ready. What God prophesied in Ezekiel, he will accomplish through Jesus. And not as a mere agent of God, um, a channel of God's power like the prophets or the apostles who did perform miracles, but as God himself. Because in John 5.21, Jesus says that the Son gives life to whomever he will. Whoever he wants to give life to, he does. He is able to do this. Because in John 5.26, Jesus has life in himself. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Only God has life in himself. Creatures like us have life as a gift from God. We are contingent, dependent, derivative of his life. We live by his free decision. He has the power to give life and to take it away. God, however, is alive without reference to anything but God. He is always alive. He can never not be alive. The Father has life in himself, and he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is so important for our salvation because should the Father not be life in himself, should he not grant the Son to have life in himself, then the Son would have no life to give to those he came to redeem, which is basic to his mission. He has to be the source of life in order to grant it. Uh, Closely linked to this divine power of resurrection is the prerogative of divine judgment. Um, All sin is ultimately against God, and so only God can judge. And Jesus is claiming this for himself as well. He is the judge. John 5, 22, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And so the Father is confident in the Son's perfection. He's proud of the Son. He loves the Son. He's confident in his obedience. The Son of God is the face of God the Father's judgment. When we think of the judgment of Christ, when we think of the judgment of God, we should picture Jesus. He will be the judge that we stand before. It is the Son who sits in judgment of the earth. He will deliver the final verdict, raising some to life and some to judgment. Which has got to be making the Pharisees pretty nervous, right? If this were true, this man that they're challenging is the judge of the universe. And that's all the more reason Jesus' audience should honor him. Uh, He is the one who, in the end, will be enthroned. Um, This really is how you really know Jesus is claiming to be God. Some people will read this text and sort of wonder if there's like an adoptionist uh, Christology where they think that Jesus is just this really great man who God has anointed and chosen to to fill these roles out um, as opposed to being eternally God. But no one in that position would ask to be worshipped. Like it it would not be okay for the prophet Elijah to, to demand worship, right? No prophets ever accepted worship. No apostles ever accepted worship. Um, Acts 14 is almost like a photo negative of this scene uh, where Paul performs a similar miracle. He heals a crippled man. And then seeing this, all these Greek pagans start calling them Zeus and Hermes and wanting to worship them and like bring worship. And in verse 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Do not worship us. We are the same as you. Paul and Barnabas are of like nature with us. But Jesus is not of like nature with us, not only at least. He is not just human, but was divine first, which means he deserves to be worshipped. And not only does Jesus deserve to be glorified alongside God, he's not a second God, he is one with God. And that means that we glorify the Father when we glorify the Son. That is the way we worship the Father, is through the Son. God the Father is honored when God the Son is honored, and we deny the Father when we deny the Son. That's the importance of this text. Jesus is emphasizing, I, Pharisees, Jews, 
you say you love the Father, you cannot love the Father without loving me. You cannot worship the Father without worshiping me. You cannot obey the Father without obeying me. And it's remarkable, if you think about, picture this scene, if what Jesus says is true, to imagine the experience of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, being called a blasphemer. Imagine Jesus, the righteous judge of all the earth, being himself judged. They're standing over him in judgment. When is the last time you have been wrongly challenged? When is the last time you were unjustly accused? How did it feel? It's one of the most infuriating experiences in your life, right? What would I have done with those feelings if I held the power of the universe, the power of life and death? If I, in that moment, could execute judgment right then and there? It's wild to think of Jesus's humility, his humiliation, that is the like theological term for Jesus's dissension or incarnation, humiliation, because he descended to take on human form, to get below the lowest of the low, and to have these wicked men stand over him as if they are better than he is. And yet, what does he do? Jesus, the Son of God, in perfect union with God the Father, full of the Holy Spirit, he pleads for their faith. This is like monologue Jesus, it's philosopher Jesus, it's certainly like very profound and we can get lost in the weeds, but don't forget, don't miss his pleading with them to believe. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Do not miss what I'm saying. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Patient pleading is Christ's consistent response to being challenged. When John the Baptist later would question if Jesus was the Messiah, how must that have pained Christ? Here, this is the one who should get it the most. Right here is his closest ally. His disciples are just like bumbling idiots, but John the Baptist feels like the most significant person, and for him to come and say, send two people to say, like, are you really the Messiah? What was Jesus's feelings in that moment? Don't you remember my baptism? Don't you remember the voice from heaven, John? But what does he say? He answers them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I feel like it's really easy for me to approach the Bible in a very academic way and to sort of approach Jesus in that way, and that's, that's a lot of my personality. 
but I can read it pretty cold and miss the, the pleading emotion of Jesus when he is desperately wanting people to believe. Verse 23, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That is a great, great word for us. Am I offended by Jesus this morning? Where am I tempted to be offended by him? Are you put off? Are we put off by his claims to divinity, his claims to exclusive worship, to full obedience, his claim to sit on the throne of judgment, over me and everyone else, judging all people by what they do, holding the right to give life and take it away. Where I'm comfortable with the other versions of Jesus, the turning water into wine Jesus, the speaking to the Samaritan woman Jesus, the healing healer, the miracle worker. But here, am I offended by this Jesus? This is Jesus. Don't let this offend you, friend. Uh, last night, I... Uh, we watched uh, the latest stand-up comedy from Don Mulaney, and he talks at length about an intervention that his friends had. Uh, I don't know if you know his sort of story. He is fresh out of rehab, um, a couple years out of, of rehab from really substantial drug addiction, and he had 12 friends who staged an intervention uh, for him for that. And he talks about how hard it was to like open the door and see 12 friends um, looking at him, how angry he was how he still harbors mixed feelings even to this day um, about that whole experience. Um, but in the end, he recognized that his friends loved him, that that's why they were there. And it was important for his ultimate healing that he not be offended by their love for him, even if it was hard love, difficult love. We should not be offended by Jesus' love for us. John 3.17 reminds us God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That is not why Jesus came, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Do not believe is condemned already because he not believe is offended at this Christ. And it cuts them off from faith. The reason Christianity aspires to be a global religion that it's not content to be just a regional faith like uh, attached to a specific culture or people group, which is true of many, many religions. Um, it's because Christianity claims that humanity's relationship with God hinges entirely on one's relationship with Jesus. That he is the one way to the Father is through the Son. You cannot get to the Father apart from the Son. Reject Jesus and you reject God is what Jesus is saying here. And because God is the exclusive giver of life, reject God and you reject life. We are not like God. We don't have life in ourselves. We can't just live without him. And so that means that our very life depends on the judgment of Christ. Our life is in his hands. He's pleading with the Jewish leaders, my, your life is in my hands. In this monologue, Jesus' tone may be firm, but it is still loving. He may be putting the Jewish leaders in their place, but he's not delighting to do it. He's doing it for their salvation, theirs and ours. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. Isn't that a wonderful thing? As people who struggle with shame and guilt and fear of judgment, 
to believe in Christ, you will not come into judgment, but you have passed from death to life. There is no judgment for you whatsoever. You just sort of skip ahead. What's the pasto and whatever? I, I can't remember the phrase. But you just get to go. You get to skip judgment. Truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Both life now and life forever depend on hearing and believing the voice of God in Jesus. This is why Jesus came. It's why the book of John was written. People will ask Jesus in 628. We can sort of get nervous when it talks about here that um, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, because all of us know, like, I have done evil. And people ask Jesus in 628. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in whom he has sent. That is the call of the book of John. That is the call of Jesus. Believe in Christ, whom God the Father has sent. To make it a little easier on us, to make it good news and not bad news that God the Son is the judge of the universe. Going back to John 5, you'll notice in Jesus' last statement about judgment, Jesus gives a different reason that God the Father has made him judge, a reason other than his divinity. So initially in verse 22, Jesus is made judge because he's the son of God. But in verse 27, Jesus is made judge because he's the son of man. What is in that? Uh, this is an allusion to Daniel 7. It's one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. He uses it all the time of himself. No one else does, which is interesting. And if you go back to Daniel 7, there's this Old Testament story where the prophet Daniel has a vision. And in that vision, there are four beasts representing four wicked kingdoms. And they are cast as beasts because these empires are like rapacious animals, right? Brutalizing, terrorizing the peoples of the world. They're predators. They're no longer fulfilling their calling to be image bearers, ambassadors for Yahweh. And so they're not human. They're inhuman. They are animals. And the last is the worst of all. But God ultimately destroys those kingdoms, and in their place, he puts in charge one like a son of man. That is, not a beast, but a human. And this son of man arrives in an unusual way. He arrives on the clouds from heaven. So verse 7, chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, the one older than days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is this son of man from Daniel 7. He was not born in the usual way. He descended from heaven with the clouds. But he is truly a son of man. He is a human being like us. 
And that, according to John 5, gives him a unique ability to judge. On top of him being the eternal son of God, he is man. And that makes him a unique judge. The author of Hebrews, which we uh, happen to be, I didn't even see that our New City Catechism was why must the Redeemer be man, I think, um, which is a happy, a happy accident, right? Um, and we read Hebrews 2.17, but Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. But in order to help us, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, made like us, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sons, sins of the people, so that now, Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. It's the combination of Jesus being both God and man that makes him uniquely qualified to judge and save us. God could have just judged and been done with it. But in order to save us, he had to send his son to become man, to become one of us. But first, he will have to die for us. The other kings, the beasts, gain their kingdoms through violence and brutality, but the Son of Man is given his kingdom by God the Father because of his obedience. Obedience to the point of death. Philippians 2, 6, Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be hoarded, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The gospel is none other than the glory of God, the glory of God the Father revealed through God the Son, perfected by God the Spirit. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity is the core Christian doctrine. It enriches and beautifies all the others. And we need not understand it exhaustively. We cannot. The Trinity is a great mystery that we only understand because it's been revealed to us. We only understand through analogy, but we're called to believe it. It's why the Gospel of John was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. As Christians, we are baptized into that triune name, right? Into Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As mysterious as it is, though, the Trinity should ultimately bring us great peace, great comfort, joy, confidence that nothing less than the triune God is the Lord of our salvation. That his care for us, it's not Jesus going out on his own, his, uh, on his own, in his own effort, saving us from sin and death by himself. No, he is himself God, the Son united with Father and Spirit. That reminds me of Ecclesiastes 4.12, the proverb that a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Right? 
behind Jesus, alongside Jesus, in Jesus, is nothing less than the eternal, infinite, perfect, pure being of God. All God's attributes, undivided, unchanged, unadulterated, God's full wisdom and power and love and justice and presence stand behind him and so stand behind you and your salvation. These all belong to Jesus as the Son by nature and by right. We are God's children by grace, as a gift, through adoption, but Jesus is God's Son by nature because he shares God's nature. We were created in time from nothing. The Son was begotten in eternity. Matthew Barrett writes, Only one who is God himself, begotten from the very essence of the Father, is capable of saving a fallen humanity. Unless he is born from the Father from all eternity, we have little confidence we will be born again and enter the kingdom of the Son. Only he who has life in himself can give life to those who desperately need it. This God is the man standing in front of the Jews in John 5. This God is the man who is pleading with them and pleading with us to believe, to trust him. This God is the man who died on the cross for our sins, who suffered in our place. This God is the man who was raised from the dead, is seated at God's right hand, and now gives life to all who believe. Let us bow down and worship him today in real time with our knees and also with our lives. Let's pray. Dear Father, we, again, are, are thankful that you didn't leave us in the dark, but that you reveal and continue to reveal your glorious splendor Mankind across history has come up with all kinds of stories on how the universe began and how people became people and, and what explains life. And they're cool and interesting and fascinating, but none of them are as profound and beautiful as this. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit Lover, beloved, and love itself is what upholds the universe. It's what created the universe. It's what sustains the universe. It's what redeems the universe. Open our eyes. You plead with us to see. We plead with you. Make us see. And change us so that we believe in Christ and the one who sent him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.